right, everybody, welcome to the Soccer Hour, brought to you by your NorCal Honda dealers. Let's not delay and get right into it. We are now joined by Alicia Jessup, sports law and business expert. You've seen her work on the Washington Post. She teaches sports law at Pepperdine, and now we've got her talking about the business of the World Cup. Alicia, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well and excited to be talking to you as always. And I should I feel like I should point out that you were also named uh, your Twitter account at Ruling Sports was named one of Forbes top 50 sports business accounts in 2017. So I'll give this uh, quick plug right off the uh, bat. If you're not following at Ruling Sports, you are uh, you're, you're missing out. You would agree, I assume. I, I appreciate that. I've gone viral a couple of times lately for <laughs> probably not the best reasons, but I think it's a good account. Hey, I think it's a good account as well. Um, and I, we can let people figure out what things have gone viral, but I had your back the entire time for what it was worth. Uh, but um, let's get into uh, the World Cup now. Obviously, we are seeing um, on social media, I find that the engagement in terms of the American sports fan has never been higher, but I know that that cannot be said in terms of traditional media, most specifically TV. Those ratings have been down. What is your read on that situation? What are you hearing? Sure. So ratings are definitely down and they're down significantly. And the question is what to blame for that. So the World Cup is played every four years. If we look at the ratings from the last iteration of it in 2014, ratings for the first 48 games of the World Cup are down 42% in the United States. Wow. And that's astronomical. <laughs> um, for, yeah, right? For the first 48 games, viewership in America on Fox, so English language viewership, was just over 2 million people, whereas in 2014, it was roughly 3.4 million. And so the question is, what's causing that? Obviously, the low-hanging fruit is the lack of the United States presence <laughs> since we we missed... Um, we bombed Guam. out. <laughs> yeah, to Trinidad and Tobago, pretty, pretty bad. So th there's that aspect. But if you talk to the network brass at Fox, they're going to tell you that the issue has nothing to do with the United States presence, but it's actually the time zone that the World Cup is being played in since the games are being aired live and the World Cup's taking place in Russia. Nonetheless, with the growth of soccer popularity in the U.S. and the rising interest in Major League Soccer, you can look at teams like the Seattle Sounders and the team in Atlanta and how they've been selling tickets at record numbers. Yeah, It's a little disappointing that viewership is down 42% in 2018. That's wild. And let me, and uh, this will sound crazy, Alicia, but I am going to, I don't even know if this is devil's advocate or me just being uh, a fool. Why don't they show these games in addition to showing them live later on in the day in prime time, like NBC has done in their Olympic coverage? NBC has done live and they've also done tape delay. They've given people both those options M uh, excuse me, not NBC, but Fox has Fox, obviously the big network, and they have Fox Sports One. I understood there was a, you know, the conflict with the U.S. Open in which the U.S. Open had the rights to the big Fox station, but it seems to me like I, there's a lot of Fox Sports One program where, programming where I'm like, I feel like there could be a primetime replay of this game right now, and people would watch. What what's stopping them from doing that? I have, I don't think that's a bad question. I have no idea what's stopping them from <laughs> doing it. Um, this is Fox's first go at the World Cup. They, uh, 
it was NBC and ABC that held the rights since 94. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's something that we'll see in future versions, especially in the next World Cup, which will be held in Qatar. But I, I can't give you a good reason for why they aren't doing that other than possibly advertisers and what their wishes are for their ad buys. Okay, and then back to what you said about the, the start times. Um, it's interesting because at Avaya Stadium, where the earthquakes play, we've had a lot of people come out to these watch parties that on you know the West Coast have been starting at 6 o'clock in the morning. People are out there. There have been thousands of people out there. We've had to open up sections inside the stadium because so many people want to come and watch on the video boards. So there's obviously that audience. Is there anything, in your opinion, that Fox has done that has failed to capitalize on other storylines that aren't necessarily – the United States are they did they not understand how to sell this um, without the United States in it I think you can make the argument that they haven't done a great job marketing this major event so Fox is a first-time rights holder for the World Cup as is Telemundo mm -hmm. who won the rights for the Spanish language broadcast in the US over Univision that had held them for 50 years the contrast between Fox's experience and Telemundo's is night and day. So Telemundo had an ad buy expectation of $225 million. Mm -hmm. So Telemundo bought the rights for $600 million and about a month before the World Cup, it said it expected to generate $225 million in ad buy revenue. And it actually upped that estimate to $250 million days before the game. So that's that's a really good sign. And Telemundo also expected to draw English viewers to its Spanish language broadcast, which really? is fascinating. So it said people who speak English, they expect would watch on Telemundo. And so the question is, why is that? And the answer to that question is Telemundo had a much more robust marketing scheme in place for the World Cup than Fox. So you live in a major city, San Francisco, I live in a major city, Los Angeles. Soccer is very popular in both of those locations. Mm -hmm. Look around your neighborhood. Look at billboards. I spend a lot of time on the freeway as someone who lives in Los <laughs> Angeles. I can't tell you a World Cup billboard that I saw in a city that has a Fox headquarters. So definitely marketing. And you wonder if that was an internal decision once the U.S. was ousted to not spend more than the reported $425 million Fox already spent to make this um, inventory purchase. It's interesting. And again, we're talking to Alicia Jessup right now here on the Soccer Hour, KMBR 1050. People said that because Fox was in this unique position of airing the World Cup in the United States in the modern sports era without the United States in it, in the lead-up they said if the United States gets the joint bid with Canada-Mexico 2026. It'll be a net positive for them regardless of what happens. Um, and so now we're seeing that the ratings are down um, and people are not watching as much on Fox. But they do have the rights, I guess, through the 2026 World Cup, which is going to be, of course, United States, Canada, Mexico. Is that long game going to work out for them or is or, or should they just be looking at, hey, we're taking it on the chin right now? The world changes so drastically, especially in the media landscape, that you really can't afford to play the long game when it's that <laughs> far away. You, you can't. Um, so much can happen between now and then in terms of how fans consume media and where we're watching sports. So Fox owns the television broadcast and you reference this at the beginning of this segment 
what's going on with the decline in viewership? Is it really the fact that the U.S. isn't playing or is it that fans are consuming media elsewhere, such as on their smartphone and through digital media? So when it comes to owning rights, you want to derive value from those rights in the immediacy because so much is going to change between now and 2026. Yeah, it's well, it's interesting you bring that up because a lot of my viewership of this has not been on my television. It's been on my iPad. It's been where I'm doing other stuff and I've got my iPad there where I can watch it while I'm doing because that's just how I watch sports. It, you know, you understand with a busy lifestyle, it doesn't always afford you the ability to just kick back in your couch and, you know, <laughs> watch tv it's like you're doing stuff you're on the go you're moving around when is when are the tv networks going to start getting uh, a comcast or an at&t or these other uh, cable and internet service providers to say these are the numbers of the streams in terms of who's also watching that because um you know i I understand that at the age of 35, I'm right on the cutoff for what a millennial is, but I have plenty of friends who are 40-something who have been watching these games on their phone or on their iPad or on their you know, browser while they're at work and just switching the tab when their boss walks by. <laughs> That's nice. It's always cool to walk, work in sports. We don't have to switch right? the tab. It's work. <laughs> Nobody come for our jobs, please. Ted and I would like to keep them. That's something that needs to happen in the next 10 years. As someone who works in this space, as someone who reports in this space, is one of the most frustrating parts of framing the narrative is we don't have hard data. Mm -hmm. The numbers aren't reported. And so you hope things like the AT&T and Time Warner merger might lead to releasing more data in that regard. But my gut tells me by the time the 2026 World Cup occurs, we will have more solidified data in terms of digital viewership consumption. Are the ISPs not able to extrapolate that de- data cleanly yet, or do they withhold for a reason? Is there is there is there any play to them for not letting um, uh, a, a, these television companies know? Is it better for them to keep it vague and nebulous? I honestly have no idea. What I do know is that as a reporter, occasionally I get data from the league, so it's usually the NBA or the NFL that lets me know how many people stream the game. So that signals to me that the data can be mined and hmm. accumulated. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) No, it's it's just interesting because it seems like one of those things, uh, if I I know what a a media giant like Fox or or Comcast or any of these companies, if it seems to me that they're never delaying an opportunity to pat themselves on their back. It seems like if they could say these huge stream numbers are there, they'd be wanting to announce it, right? Well, you have to look at the total business model. So how does a company like Comcast stay in business? It has contracts in place with the individual networks. So in order for Comcast to stay in business, it needs the networks to stay in business. And so there's probably some conflicts of interest where the cable service or satellite service provider doesn't want to look like it's usurping the entire marketplace (laughs) of the network because it needs the network to survive. So in layman's terms, it's kind of a chicken before the egg sort of scenario. 
that we might be see playing out and why we don't have access to that hard data for digital streaming numbers. What do you think the numbers would represent? Have you been able to gauge in terms of what you see on social media? Do you think the viewership is much greater than the decline it is showing? I think there's a definite decline in viewership, even when you add in the digital streaming. And the example I will give is just based off of something that's very unscientific. So as a professor, (laughs) I hate doing this, but it's a very unscientific Um, analysis, you look at what's trending on Twitter. So you and I are recording this on Tuesday when Columbia and England faced off in an incredible match that went to PKs. Well, I get back from that game being over. I go on to Twitter. I see what's trending and Wilson Chandler is trending. (laughs) So the Denver Nuggets player is trending as one of the top topics in the United States. So that signals to me, yeah, that signals to me that there's not the discourse that should be taking place for such a critical game in the World Cup um, to make it to the next round of play. We will continue this conversation with sports business expert Alicia Jessup coming up next on the Soccer Hour. Welcome back to the Soccer Hour brought to you by your NorCal Honda dealers. We are talking to sports law and business expert Alicia Jessup. What, in in your opinion, since you were recently uh, abroad, how differently is the cultural consumption of the World Cup that you got to see? And I know that wasn't your the reason you were abroad, but I'm sure you noticed some things. What's the cultural difference in, in terms of consumption of the World Cup versus what you've seen in the United States? It was incredible and electric. So I was in Spain and Switzerland. I was in Spain when the World Cup began, but I was in Switzerland for the bulk of the first 48 games of the World Cup. And so Spain, obviously, you have um, the firing of their coach two days before the start (laughs) of the World Cup. So that led to some interesting conversations with fans. Um, You have two incredible teams there in Madrid and Barcelona. So there was obvious energy, but I was actually in Ibiza <laughs> during that time. So people in Ibiza are a little preoccupied little with bit. other things outside <laughs> of soccer. So I, I think my best examples would come from my time in Switzerland. So Switzerland is in the World Cup this year. But what was most fascinating to me about my time in Switzerland, I was in Lausanne where the IOC is headquartered, was you would walk outside and around the city every single day and it didn't matter who was playing. The World Cup was on at every restaurant or bar, and there were people filling the streets surrounding (laughs) the restaurants or bars to watch any game. Um, And then there was a big public square with huge TVs that every evening thousands of people would crowd into and watch the game live with tons of friends. But what was most surprising to me was – after the games, it didn't matter who won, there would be honking and crowd noise for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. So it would keep you keep you up all night, um, regardless of who the winner was. Awesome. Again, we're talking to Alicia Jessup right here on the Soccer Hour KMBR 1050. Um, what do you think, looking forward to uh, Cutter in 2022, we assume the United States is going to be there. Um, what do you think? Assumption. Yes, it is a big assumption, but we, we assume, and I'm sure Fox assumes that. Um, what do you think their takeaway from this World Cup is it's been a unique experience for them and for other media entities that they, they can use here in this United States absence but apply in four years when, again, we assume that the United States will be a part of this and you would assume that the full 
marketing engines are all chugging in support of that. Yeah, so I think the hard thing about Fox being a television network is you look at the demographics where soccer fandom exists in the United States and your biggest groupings of fans are millennials and younger. Mm -hmm. And if you look at who's not watching network TV, it's millennials and younger. And so what Fox really needs to do to engage interest in what it purchased is find a way to get millennials and younger to turn on TV. Yeah. Um, and, and for I, I'm a sports writer. Sports is the lifeblood of my career. And I'm going to let you on to a secret that few people know. I haven't had TV in a year. I <laughs> don't have TV. <laughs> So hopefully that but doesn't out you, me. But you have an iPad and you have an iPhone and you have a computer, though. I watch everything on my phone, and so if I'm already doing that, I'm 34 years old. What are my students who are 18 years old who have never had a cable subscription going to be doing four years from now? How different is the world going to look at? And that's the problem with this purchase. And you have to wonder how Fox viewed making the purchase. And why its competitors, ESPN, ABC, NBC, opted out of something that seemed to be gained for relatively cheap. So why did they opt out and Fox opted in? It's hard to make these bets four years down the road. Are, are these companies simply, are they trying to eke out the last bit of profit that's there in a traditional model, or are they simply not preparing themselves for the evolution that's been happening over the last 10 years? It's just that the people in charge have not put themselves in the position to capitalize on it yet. I mean, which, which is the, which is the better way of viewing it? I would say it's the latter. I would say that they're not prepared for huge generational shifts. If you look at the buying power in America right now, Millennials hold the bulk of the buying power within the next five to 10 years. Generation Z, so the rising generation, is going to hold an exorbitant amount of buying power. And if you look who's in power, it's people my father's age who are Caucasian males. We're also some generational shifts that are switching the ethnic demographics in this mm -hmm. country. And so the networks are not fully responding to their consumers and they're going to pay for it. Yeah, no, it definitely seems like they will. And I guess we'll have that story to look forward to over the next four years. But <laughs> always, Alicia, I appreciate your time and your input. And I look forward to talking to you again real soon. All right. Yes, I don't have a dog in this fight. Germany's out. The U.S. is out. Colombia. I don't know. You just hop on board with, with England because that, that they're fun right now. All right. <laughs> Go England. I'm really excited. <laughs> Again, that is sports business and sports law expert Alicia Jessup. Now it's time for us to be joined by Daniel Sperry of MLSsoccer.com and Last Word on Soccer. You also know his work from the 24-7-4 podcast. Daniel, what's going on, man? How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's uh, middle of World Cup fever. Just got, I did a, went to a big watch party uh, downtown KC for the uh, England-Columbia match. So just middle of uh, World Cup fever and... Yeah, you know, this is like this is the best time of 
every four years, I guess I'll put it that way. But yeah, man, this is doing good right now. Yeah, I've just really enjoyed this World Cup, I think because the United States hasn't been in it. I've been really stressed out in previous World Cups, and I think Mm -hmm. that's almost detracted from my enjoyment. But this year, because I don't have the same type of rooting interest, I mean, I've just had a blast. And then I also couple with the fact that the games have been amazing. Um, You know, what we saw today between Colombia and England was a really, really fun match, and it was just, you know, it was endless and just kept on going on and on and on. And that was a great game. We'll talk about that in a second, and I want to hear your thoughts on the watch party. Um, But the Belgium comeback win over Japan, I mean, that's that's the game of the tournament, right? And maybe one of the best games in World Cup history. Yeah, easily. I mean, I can't. I I can't think of a comeback like that in in World Cup. Uh, to have that, to have, I mean, it's thirty seconds left. It's a knockout game. You know, they were they seemed dead on their rights. They make two switches for players who, I, people on Twitter were, I mean, up in arms that you brought on Master Chadley and uh, and Marlon Fellaini as your two remedies to a two nothing hole against what had been a very very strong, resolute, and very smart technical side in Japan that whole time. And all of a sudden, it just opened up. They got their headers. They you know they they pushed and overloaded the dangerous areas. And then you have the absolutely as a most well executed counterattack that I think I've seen in world soccer in. Uh, in a very very long time i mean that was it's the perfect you had you had the perfect person too for courtois mm-hmm. to roll that out and give that to de Bruyne because once de Bruyne gets in those situations where he's just running full gallop north south heading straight up the middle of the field he has that vision to pick out the you know you have a cop who makes the right run i think there's a really good article about that on sb nation where he doesn't even touch the ball the entire sequence but his movement in the counter attack correctly pulls players away and opens up space for certain things to happen in the dummy and to leave that ball alone when he can smash that with his right and go in and take all the glory or he can set up one of the most you know a perfect wide open shot right behind him and just leave it go i mean it's absolutely perfectly executed you know 30 seconds left in stoppage time took him like 10 seconds to get down the field it was it was an incredible ending to that game i, I had just gotten off of work and i was sitting down and it was Belgium had just made it 2-1. Oh, wow. And so I watched <laughs> So I watched the end of that. And, I mean, I, my jaw was on the floor with that counterattack. I couldn't believe it. There's just a, the, that, that, that ending, the, the game, the roller coaster of emotion throughout that for both teams. I mean, that's, that is an, a World Cup all-timer. I, for me personally, I don't know if I've, I've like, outside of a, a non-U.S. game where I have like experience the emotional ups and downs. I yeah. don't know if I've, uh, I don't know if I've experienced a game like that in a World Cup. Uh, I'm trying to think back to like maybe some of the first, maybe the uh, in the uh, 2006 World Cup you had the, uh, which was probably was for me was one of the first World Cups that I really truly remember and paying attention all the way through. Uh, I love the Argentina uh, Mexico round of 16 game. You had those two early goals in there. I know there wasn't as many goals going on to where it was headed back and forth scoring and stuff like that. I mean, there were close calls on either end. The Argentinians were playing great round of 16. You know, for me, I'm sitting there and I, uh, you know, I'm rooting for Argentina because I was like, no, I don't want Mexico to go on. U.S. crashed out of the group. I'm 
I'm going for, you know, <laughs> nobody gets any fun in CONCACAF and, uh, you know, that, that ridiculous volley by Maxi Rodriguez um, in uh, the in extra time there. That was that was one of those games for me um, that I can, I can go back to. I think there were some crazy ones, too, in 2010 and 2014, certainly. Um, but there's, I mean, I think some stat was at the, it's like, in like, I think it's 18 goals in stoppage time or something like that. I might be I might be overshooting it. But there is a, it has been a ridiculous amount of goals that have gone in in stoppage time in this World Cup and that have changed results, that have changed outcomes. And, you know, you had a little bit of more today, but it's just incredible how this World Cup has played out. And like you said, it's wide open. Uh, you know, it feels like it's so much more enjoyable because we don't know what's going to happen in every game regardless. You know, you think Belgium should have rolled Japan 4 nothing, 5 nothing going into that game. I would have... I would have expected that and I wouldn't have been surprised. But then you have, you know, the Japanese who come out and put out an excellent performance and Belgium looks lackluster and all of a sudden they hit the switch and they go and they end up with the win. So it's been, it, this, like you said, this has easily been probably the most, I, I, I miss my rooting interest in it, but <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of paying attention to just everything that's going on in the whole spectacle, this has probably been one of the most entertaining World Cups um, in recent memory because I feel like in 2010 and 2014, you had so many defensive things and teams kind of just going 0-0 or they're, you know, they're playing it safe and not really taking the heavy risks and stuff like that. And I hate that. And I hate KG games and where you know just kind of standoffish and hope something breaks your way or um, you know whoever makes the first mistake loses and you know this world cup it seems like teams are willing to make mistakes and they're risking everything and going forward and trying to do everything that they can to win and it's been it, it, the the entertainment factor has uh has really paid off um with that type of mindset behind a lot of these teams we will continue this conversation with daniel sperry of mlssoccer.com coming up next Welcome back to the Soccer Hour on KMBR 1050, brought to you by your NorCal Honda dealers. We are talking to Daniel Sperry of MLSsoccer.com. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I keep on coming back to is just how entertaining these matches have been. And you alluded to it by saying there's been more risk-taking. Um, is that because these coaches realize that it's worth taking those risks? I mean, I thought that Germany, even though they hadn't been that great, over the last six months, I thought that once the tournament started, they were going to steamroll teams, and then they didn't. I mean, yeah. I can't tell who the best team is. The fact that J Japan could come in and put that kind of a performance up against Belgium, A, I was, I mean, I was so, I was heartbroken for them. I wasn't rooting for either team. I was just watching, mm -hmm. but I was heartbroken by Japan, for Japan, as much as I was enthralled by Belgium's heroics at the end. I mean, that's, it's this weird vantage point that I've never been able to experience before. And I guess that just leads me to the fact is, do you know who the favorite is at this point? I mean, France has looked good at times. So is Croatia. Um, but I can't, I can't say like, hey, this is the team that I'm pointing to above all else. Oh yeah, I I think Belgium and France are pretty much they're pretty square, cut and dry, like the clear favorites, just based on talent and their ability to make it happen with that talent. Um, they found ways. France has found ways to be dangerous. Kylian Mbappe has been their danger man with his speed. But guys like, you know, Griezmann has played well. Their midfield has played well. Pogba has come up in huge moments. And then I think that I actually think the well, I think the Belgians just it seemed lackluster. They were stunned um, by what they were getting from the Japanese team. And I think I, I won't say they slept walk or kind of didn't underestimate it, but I think they, they was kind of the, OK, they got punched in the mouth and they were shocked um, with what they were dealing with. 
because their group was pretty much a skate. You know, you play Panama and Tunisia. Okay, those are two big roles that you can go on. And then after that, you play England in a game with, you know, it mattered for what side of the bracket you end up on. But both your both those teams are already through. It's kind of a pointless result. Both teams played, um, you know, very second many second choice players to avoid yellow card accumulation and all that stuff and give players rest and rotate the squad. So. You know, that becomes a very moot where Belgium and England, you know, didn't really face anyone good at a high competitive level. Um, and so then Belgium comes in and they get punched in the mouth by Japan for a bit and rally and respond. And their quality kind of uh, quality sh- shown through at the end, too, with that run with Kevin De Bruyne. And, you know, Thomas Munier is a great right back. And you have uh, Nasser Chadley, who has been kind of on the fringe everywhere for a while, but came in and made the perfect bombing run at the back post. And you have, you have England today who gutted it out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't pretty at times, but they gutted it out and they got the job done and they did it in penalty kicks, which is uh, some intestinal fortitude that they have not had in ever, <laughs> what it seems like. Uh, so there's some good, some good stuff from there. And I think, um, you know, out on that right side of the bracket, maybe I, I consider England a favorite, but because I don't, but I don't know how they're going to match up with a Sweden team. That Swedish team looks good, and they've been difficult for teams to break down. And I think it'll be interesting to see what England come up with to try and combat what Sweden has done, because Sweden. Um, I think Sweden will be a lot more organized and better than what Colombia was uh, on there as they moved into the attacking third. Uh, Emil Forsberg's a great playmaker. Um, that the whole right side of the bracket is just completely wide open. But I, if there's any three that I would choose from that side, it would be Croatia and then the winner of Sweden and England that I think could um, could come out of that side of the bracket and be a can you know could potentially win the whole thing because all you have to do is get to the final, um, put in a good performance and you can pull it off. Um, if you, you know, so at this rate, um, so you know, I, I, I would go with France and Belgium at the top, but, um, that, that I, they're still not entirely clear favorites because I haven't seen France just completely overpower and be clinical and be a team that everyone thought they would be. Um, and Belgium have been that at times, but against lesser opposition. So if they can come out, let's say Belgium comes out and, Maybe ste- I won't say steamrolls Brazil, but puts out a convincing performance mm-hmm. against Brazil. Um, I think you would uh, personally. I would put them as the clear favorite um, if they if they were to come out and put in a really really strong performance against Brazil. Uh, but then again, Brazil has been gutsy and they've done it well and they've gotten their counterattacks. They've played, scored some good goals, and you know everybody's kind of scoring for them. Coutinho has scored a couple. Neymar's gotten a couple. Um, they've gotten some goals off set pieces, and they look like they're playing pretty well as well. So uh, Brazil's in there. It's wide open. That's the hard part is that you get into these quarterfinals. I feel like you know all eight teams have a really good shot. The only team that I would say that I would pretty much discount at this point would be Russia, and I discounted them against Spain, and right. <laughs> look what happened. So, <laughs> you know, I you would think a team that's a little bit more direct, more aggressive, might have some more uh, um, success against them. Uh, I think Spain weren't aggressive enough, but yeah, I mean, they, Russia's really the only team that I would consider not a favorite at this moment, because all these other teams that are still in it have a whole lot of quality um, and, and a lot of ability to get something done. And I think, you know, one team I didn't mention was Uruguay and Uruguay, um, has looked fantastic in all phases, uh, of the game so far and, and have done it 
really well against good opponents as well. So um, Uruguay is up there as well. So like I said, Russia is the only team that I would put a question mark next to. Um, I think that's the beauty of the, what we've talked about. This World Cup is so wide open. You don't really know who is the clear-cut favorite to win it all. Um, tell me about the watch party you went to for England-Columbia today because at Avaya Stadium, there have been thousands upon thousands of people coming to those watch parties. They've been opening up sections inside the stadium. I mean, it's amazing because in 2014, obviously, Avaya Stadium hadn't opened yet. It was still in its final phases of construction. So there wasn't a place like this. But the way that I am seeing the American pop culture respond to the World Cup without America in it, A, and in terms of social media, even having more of a place of um, just overall, you know, importance in our sporting culture right now. I mean, this is, it's huge. I mean, I won't say it doesn't matter that America isn't in it because that would, the TV ratings purely would be better, but the engagement as a culture has been, I mean, simply spectacular. Oh yeah, for sure. I think I've said, told the story on here, but I've told it on our 24, on the podcast with Joel before, you know, the last World Cup, I took my friend to an American Outlaws watch party nice um american outlaws modesto uh, he was like all right i'm gonna watch the world cup i'll get into it so he watched the world cup go go out by fifa started playing some games and kind of got him playing <laughs> fifa and stuff like that because you're a video game guy okay cool so we walk go and continue to watch the group stage games at um in modesto with the american outlaws bar there um and you know get it just kind of slowly immerse him into the culture and before then it was you know soccer is a lame sport he was a basketball baseball guy liked football but you know basketball and baseball were his thing and you know didn't touch soccer and now um you know i took him uh to so i kind of slowly moved him into it and then i took him to his first mls game we did the opener against um at levi stadium the very first event that at levi stadium mm-hmm. was the earthquakes sounders game there um post the 2014 world cup we sat in the ultras we sat four or five rows up uh and i you know he he he's funny because he's kind of he's a little I won't say he's socially awkward, but at times he's just a little, he, he wasn't sure where to fit in and what to do. Um, but by halftime, he was all in it, had the shirts <laughs> off after Yannick Jolo scored. I mean, it was uh, all into it. He goes regularly now up to the Earthquakes games and a huge Tottenham fan. And he's gotten his, you know, he, he pays attention to uh, the young kids, the young Americans. I mean, FIFA, I go online on Xbox and he's always playing FIFA. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and he's, well, he, he still loves us but it took the World Cup um, just at a basic level to, okay, maybe I'll buy in at the World Cup to to root for the USA. I don't know if we've had those avenues yet, but I know, I mean, at the place that, so the place that I went today for the Columbia England match is actually the bar that is owned by Sporting Kansas City um, here at downtown Kansas City at Power and Light, which I'm sure if you've seen in the past World Cups, Mm -hmm. um, they do the big Kansas City watch parties that stage. Um, on that stage side that faces the giant crowd at the Power and Light District in Kansas City. Um, up in that top corner is the bar that Sporting Kansas City owns. And so they're right on that strip and everything. And it wasn't as packed today. The Mexico game, I know, um, that place has been the whole thing. It looks like the USA games um, from last World Cup. I mean, the, those Mexico games, they packed that place out. It was crazy, and they had a whole lot of stuff. But they've been opening their bar up in the mornings for um, with drink specials and all and breakfast specials and all kinds of stuff. Um, for people to come watch during the World Cup. I mean, that was I chose that one out of like four or five different places that I potentially could have gone that were known watch parties and known places that, you know, we're going to have the game on. We're going to have a whole lot of fans in there. And it was a really cool atmosphere. I took a video. You can check it out on my Twitter. It's at 
you know, it's had a sp- shameless plug, but it's at Sperry Daniel <laughs> <Please>. four on <laughs> Twitter. Uh, but you know, there's uh, the, the final the final shootout round there against, and it, it it wasn't full full in there, um, but there was a great mix of Colombian fans and English fans, and uh, you know cheering and screaming and yelling and you know people pounding tables at quadrados miss and you know just kind of the whole atmosphere there was cool it was great and you know the there, there's a group of people that were sitting right in front of me and it's one guy knew nothing about soccer but was totally into it was totally starting to buy into it and uh you know his friends you know were trying to say something about oh let's take you out to a sporting kc game i think it's like those little things yeah that, that they keep happening across the across the entire spectrum um from uh, in social media people are more engaged about it um people just saying hey man let's go watch this game together you know i have some cool interest for it good food, good beer, good drink, something at this place. Let's go there and hang out and do this. And it's a big community thing and people buy into that. Um, and once they get into those types of events and those types of atmospheres, I think they kind of see the game differently. Uh, they don't, they kind of come out of their, uh, if they're non-soccer people, they come out of their jaded bias. And if they're, if they're open to it, um, you know, they're going to allow it to kind of shape their fandom and join in the game. And I think, um, I, I mean, it's, it's all across the country. I think this is just one of those things that it's just going to continue to happen with every world cup, um, as it comes to as because the game will grow more and more and more inside the U S is this, you know, as all the studies show that, you know, the game is growing the most at ages 35 and under, um, in terms of investment and involvement and people who played it and people, um, who pay attention to it and watch it and go to games and stuff like that, is that it continues to grow with every generation that comes into that. So, I think that's one of the things that's that, that's come with this World Cup. I think it's just an extension of 2014 and 2010. 2014, I think, was a really big one where we I felt like we experienced a whole lot of growth. But now with the way MLS is and the level that MLS has kind of come up to, um, I think this is 2018 can be just as big of one, despite the fact that the United States wasn't in it. Again, we're talking to Daniel Sperry right now here on the Soccer Hour, KMBR 1050. As the last one for you, as we're running out of time, what are you looking for from the earthquakes in the second half of the season? Obviously, they're going to be getting Gurum Kashia, uh, the Georgian captain and the Vitesse captain. That will hopefully help their back line, which has been problematic. But, um, I mean, it's been, it's been a disappointing season up to this point. What are you – I mean, I don't even – say realistically looking for but what are you hoping for the team to accomplish with the second half of the season it sounds so basic but just get more points i mean they've they've, they've been, i feel like they've lost a lot of games from multiple uh from from winning positions i uh, go back to our positions where they could have had points and they dropped it you know mm-hmm. they they had you know you look point for me a point right to the nycfc game uh, i was at third third or fourth game of the year and they all you know up one nothing it looked like they were in cruise control and all of a sudden they you know play about five ten minutes and kind of lackluster um on a few things and lose their head and from there it just feels like it's been a spiral of you know they go get a lead and then they drop it and they get themselves in a good position and they can't capitalize um i'd like to see i'd like to see them be able to hold on to the points and pick them up um from winning positions and learning how to correctly manage games um especially if you go up one nothing 10 minutes in okay how do you manage that lead um that's something that i would like to see more of um from their standpoint i'd like to see um some in terms of style i'd love to see some more effective possession but if they're not going to do that if if they're not going to play that then i'd like to see um at times i almost think they move the ball too quickly 
uh, too vertically. I think they kind of need to slow it down and use their playmakers. I thought when they were searching to get back into the game and kind of closing out the game against the Galaxy over the weekend, um, I I thought they were the build-up play was good. It wasn't too fast, but it wasn't too slow. That um, was a good balance. They were moving the ball around. People they were trying to find dangerous people in the dangerous areas, and that's one thing that I don't think the Earthquakes have done enough. But at the same time, I don't think the, the offense is their entire issue at the moment. And I think you know, well, one, I'd love to see them attempt to do something with the left back uh, situation, uh, either addressing it in the transfer window um, or you know figuring something out to do with that um, because I think we all know that it just hasn't been up to snuff this year and then the same thing with the goalkeeper situation I know Andrew Tarbell's fighting hard and you know they have some other guys on the roster but um, it, it hasn't been great from there either and so I think in terms of roster improvement that'd be nice to see but overall I mean the earthquakes the earthquakes last year didn't you know it you look back at it that the team didn't score a whole lot of goals either. And it's been on there. You know, they made the playoffs in spite of it. And they had a good defense. Um, this year they're on pace to break what they did last year in goal scoring pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're scoring a lot of goals. They're scoring a lot. The offense has actually been relatively decent. The issue has been the defense and letting in goals and leaky goals and letting, letting players get shots from, I mean, uh, you know, you've seen it on Quake's Epicenter. You've seen it from the league detailing, you know, the Zone 14 area and where the Quakes are surrendering so many shots and surrendering so many goals. It's, you know, they're, they're not protecting that area correctly. There's something up with that um, that, you know, it just seems to me at times that either the, the midfielders are too deep or the um, have dropped, have collapsed down to the bottom of that space and leave that space open for teams to exploit um, instead of stepping up and not allowing them to enter that area, which is pretty much, I mean, it's one of the most the dangerous, most dangerous area on the field um, for the ball to be possessed in because those paths that come out of that really open up and kind of mess with the back line or the shots that come out of that are really good shots uh, on target and chances to score. So, um, the way this league is structured, no team is truly out of it. I wouldn't expect the Earthquakes to make the playoffs. They'd have to go on an absolute crazy run to do it here in the second half. But I think the biggest thing that I'd like to see them go do through the rest of the season is take steps forward as a back line uh, in terms of allowing goals and the types of goals that they're allowing and how easy they're allowing um, the, these shots are and how easy the chances are for a lot of teams. Um, I'd like to see them take care of that uh and if, if they do that they can start putting themselves in a position to pick up more points and maybe shoot their way up the table um the western conference pretty much outside of the top two or three i really think it's sporting kansas city uh fc dallas and lafc and then everyone else is just kind of a jumbled mess below that depending on who goes on a hot streak or a cold streak when and you know and when when they do it uh so you know if the earthquakes can get on a big hot streak they could do it um teams have done it in the past uh i'm not saying this team will i don't think they will but you know there's the uh, the the right steps be to get the back line straightened out whether that's plugging in new pieces or just coming up with a better um philosophy and game plan with what they're doing with those back at the back four and and the defensive midfielders and once they can start shoring up the goals uh that goal difference starts to shrink the points start going their way and they uh you know, can start potentially moving up the table. It's a, it's it's going to be it's a lot harder than it than I may than I may make it seem. But 
you know, there's, uh, you know, they, they've got a lot of issues on that defensive side that they really need to work out. But if they can do them, they could make it. They could make a decent run here in the second half. All right, Daniel. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate your time as always. Again, you can find Daniel's work on MLSsoccer.com as well as Last Word on Soccer. And again, while we give him a, a Twitter plug again, it's at SperryDaniel94. Daniel, appreciate it, man. We'll talk soon, all right? No problem. Thanks, Ted. Great to talk to you. And, uh, you know, thanks for having me on, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. That wraps it up for another edition of the Soccer Hour, brought to you by your NorCal Honda dealers. We'll see you Saturday night from Portland. I'm Ted Ramey, signing off for the San Jose Earthquakes.